Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hello. Uh, we are three weeks in now to a, a deep dive. I guess it's become sort of a deep dive on on Hannibal and uh, the early stages of the Second Punic War. Uh, why are we doing this, Carrie? Because you're a sick, sick man. Because I'm a sick man and because um, I think Hannibal's one of history's greatest monsters. He was certainly the Romans' greatest monster. Mm-hmm. He was the boogeyman under all of their beds. And um, I think this has been a nice opportunity to look at ancient uh, hand-to-hand combat, which was a, a terrible place to be, a, <laughs> a true horror, mm-hmm. uh, being a soldier in, in any of these battles. So, um, in the first part of this series, listen, if you haven't listened to the first two parts, I don't know what to tell you. You buckle up and come along for the ride. Uh, this <laughs> is the second time Rome and Carthage are fighting one another. Uh, the guy in charge of the Carthaginian army, uh, tearing through Italy for the last couple of years is named Hannibal. And he's taken up his father's mantle of revenge and um, beaten the Romans uh, every time he's uh, met them in open battle. Carrie? Mm-hmm. And in the winter of 217 to 216, the Romans were getting ready for their biggest offensive yet. It was time to... The war was going pretty well in other parts of the world, actually. Like, they had made some progress in Spain and stuff. Um, now it was time to drive Hannibal out of Italy before he could flip all of those southern um, Italian allies we talked about. That's when things were going to get really bad for Rome, as if everybody down in the southern part of Italy started flipping over to Hannibal's side, like the Gauls up in the north already had. Mm-hmm. Any impressions uh, so far for how the war has gone so far for the Romans, Carrie? Their approach, Hannibal's approach. I think they probably had assumed that this would be sort of a a quick one and done thing. And it's dragged on for so long. And Hannibal and his army have proven such a difficult foe that I think the Romans have really been scrambling to figure out how to defeat them. And... This is the first time, maybe, that they're really feeling the heat. Yeah, after some true disasters, um, they spent the second half of 217 just kind of uh, floating around Hannibal's army and refusing to fight him, which uh, worked, but it wasn't a very popular strategy back home. So the Romans were ready to raise the biggest army yet and go uh, toe-to-toe with Hannibal once again. Uh, Let's see if it goes better for him this time, Carrie. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, At the end of last week, Hannibal had left his winter quarters pretty deep into spring, actually, in like June 216, and he moved uh, south through fertile Apulia, burning and pillaging as he went, uh, and captured the town of Cani, or Cani, with uh, basically no resistance. Mm -hmm. There was a Roman army in the area, actually. It was commanded by the two consuls from the year before. But remember, in Rome, every year we elect new generals. So there's two new generals on the way with 80,000 men, uh, just 80,000 infantry, actually. And then you got a bunch of uh, cavalry, too. So the two consuls from last year were told to kind of wait, don't do anything. The the reserves are coming. Mm -hmm. So they just watched while Hannibal took this uh, town. Now, Cani was a pretty small town on top of a hill, and it had already suffered pretty badly in the fighting of the year before when Hannibal was just kind of leading the Roman army all through the countryside. 
And so Cani was actually abandoned at this point. There were no people living there. Okay. So what's the point of pillaging it? Well, it was still being used by the Romans as a supply dump. So like all of the uh, grain and uh, forage and livestock, even from all the surrounding farms and villages, had kind of been gathered up here. It's like a big public storage. Yeah. And, yeah. Like a, like a U-Haul facility, mm-hmm. except just full of mostly grain. And now Hannibal had it. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of sat there for a couple of weeks. He didn't have to go forage for supplies anymore. He could just wait for the Romans to come to him, and that's what he'd wanted. We talked about how the Romans needed a big old battle to reclaim their honor for the, the past couple of you know real embarrassments Hannibal had handed them in the field. The only way they're going to be able to hold on to their alliances in Italy is if they showed a little strength here. So they wanted a big pitched battle. Meanwhile, uh, Hannibal seems to have wanted the same thing because while he'd been in Italy for two years now, he wasn't getting any major, you know, kind of allies to flip to his side. He's probably becoming more and more confident that he could take them. Uh, Take the Romans. Mm -hmm. Well, over the last year, it doesn't seem like his army's grown very much. No, but I mean, he's still kicking. He's still kicking, but he's got a bunch of Gauls and no Italians, which means he's not getting more guys. Mm. The Romans have a lot of guys. And he was hoping by this point to be prying some of those guys away and force the Romans to the to the peace t- talk table. Well, he got the Gauls. He did get the Gauls. He's doing great, Carrie. <laughs> um, but he thought a big victory would start flipping some, some of these uh, allies a little closer to the Roman homeland. So the Romans came and camped near the Carthaginians, and both of the armies made some noise, moving scouting parties around and harassing the other sides like foragers. Um, this is what you did. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of camped out near the other army and both sides reconnoitered for a while and uh, tried to lure the other side into a battle that was like favorable for them. Now, we mentioned at the end of last week that when the two Roman consuls led the army together like this, uh, one guy would lead the whole army one day because the yes. Romans were obsessed with power sharing. And then the other guy would lead the whole army the following day. Mm-hmm. So uh, you had two Roman consuls here, a guy named Paulus and a guy named Vero. And uh, on August 1st of 216, Paulus was in command as Hannibal formed up his big-ass army just kind of outside the Roman camp, or maybe, say, a half mile away from the Roman camp, just formed up his whole army like, yo, you want to go? And it was up to the Romans at this point whether to take the battle or not, you know, and Paulus declined he didn't form up his guys and that was a nice moral victory for hannibal you know his guys felt great about that but the following day it was vero's turn to lead and while paulus may have been a little bit cautious about the ground they were fighting on vero wanted to get this shit done and he led the army out and challenged hannibal on august 2nd okay now remember the romans have eighty thousand just infantry Right. Uh, when you count the Gauls and Italians they have with them. that's a It's a crazy amount of dudes to see marching toward you in a column, kicking up dust across the plain as they go. And uh, even Hannibal's officers were nervous. Apparently a guy named Gizgo <laughs> told Hannibal that he was astonished at the number of Romans marching toward them. And Hannibal reassured his men that, well, there are an awful lot of guys out there. Not one of them is named Gizgo. (laughs) And thank God for that. Yeah, and we're told in the sources, it says, everybody laughed. (laughs) 
long and loud. So that's probably because Hannibal was the boss. Sure. But uh, who knows? So uh, the Roman infantry might have outnumbered the Carthaginian infantry. For anyone who knows nothing about military stuff and hasn't listened to the last two episodes, that's the walking guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, two to one, probably. We're talking about 80,000 uh, guys on foot to 40,000. And the Roman consuls knew this. They knew they had the numbers advantage, and they knew that they needed that to decide their victory because the other thing you have in these ancient battles is cavalry, and they knew that Hannibal had more, probably, and definitely better cavalry than they did. Mm -hmm. And he had through this whole war, right? Hannibal's cavalry is kind of one... Uh, every one of these, including once when he hid a bunch of them them in a ditch, like half a mile behind the Roman lines. Very sneaky. Very sneaky guy. Um, so because of the larger than usual army the Romans had to deal with here and the narrower than usual battlefield, they were kind of between some hills and a river. The groups of soldiers were arranged. Usually maybe they would have, uh, maybe you get groups of 100 guys, right? And you would go maybe 20 across and five deep in your little groupings. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this plane, the Romans were arranged maybe five across and 20 deep. It just says they were many times deeper than wide. So not the way they're used to marching. We're just going to completely change the plan on game day. Okay. And this meant that the guys at the back ranks of even the front line had like no clue what was happening. Sure. 80,000 people back? Well, uh, the guys, I mean in the front line, so they would be... I mean, you'd be at least 20 guys back. Yeah. But I mean, it would get worse and worse as the farther back you'd get. The guy at the back of this 80,000 man uh, pack has no clue what's happening at any point. Mm-hmm. He's uh, probably pretty safe, though. Maybe, well, we'll see. We'll find out. I don't think anyone is going to feel safe very soon. Okay. Uh, just like usual, Rome had its cavalry on the two wings to kind of protect the back of the army. Um, but instead of charging forward, they knew they weren't going to win any cavalry fights here. So their cavalry's job was just to stay back there and hold off Hannibal's cavalry, who they knew would come charging in, uh, long enough for the infantry to be able to do its job without kind of getting effed in the bee, which is what happens <laughs> when cavalry comes around behind you. And still at this point, they're not necessarily better trained men in Rome or whatever. It's just they're- that they're so many there's so there's twice as many of them they are objectively worse rome has just had to levy i mean they just had like three or four how many three or four consular armies destroyed in the last two years so they're probably you know extending the ages they're probably lowering the ages you probably have some kids and some old men in there definitely have a lot of teenagers and some older men in their 50s um and and even older yeah but they're just throwing bodies at it. It's like, uh, what was it? The Russian army that was doing that in every, World War II? I think it's every Russian army well, yeah. has done that. Um, it's it's their greatest natural resources. Lots of people. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of Rome in this conflict. They had more people to throw at this conflict than the Carthaginians. But remember, a lot of these... Hannibal just picked up a bunch of Gaul. I remember a bunch of new Gaul friends, mm-hmm. but um, he's had... Let's go, Gauls. But he's had these African and uh, Spanish soldiers serving with him for years, and some of them all the way back to serving with his dad. Right. So as opposed to these Romans who are the 
the Roman cavalry are all the rich sons of senators who weren't slaughtered in the last round of cavalry battles. And they don't have necessarily a specific reason to be um, loyal to the generals because they switch out every year. Yes, that's true. Uh, Later in Roman history, the generals would end up having all of the power once they had the... uh, once they were the ones paying the troops, like, directly. Yeah. That's something you don't want to do, by the way. Any political system. <laughs> mm-hmm. Don't have your elected leaders also be generals and also directly pay the troops out of their own pocket. Mm-hmm. Bad. Um, just like before, Hannibal lined up all of his unarmored Spanish and Celtic guys. At this battle, we're told none of these guys had helmets or armor. Uh, the Span the Spanish soldiers would I guess wear white tunics with like gold or purple or red borders. Mm-hmm. Um, but these Gauls, remember, are just in leather pants with no shirts, mm-hmm. long hair, beards, and screaming. <laughs> we always joke that like you know, Poe came from a wolf. So this is your wolf, Sean. Oh, this is these are the, the, the my Celtic roots, Gallic warriors bellowing in leather pants and and face paint and such. Is this you trying to get me to get leather pants again? Again? (laughs) You had leather pants before? No, it's an old ploy of yours trying to get (laughs) me into leather pants. I'm just saying. Pulled back a little bit on both sides from Hannibal's uh, Spaniards and Gauls in the middle were his veteran Libyan infantry. And again, just pulled back just slightly. So the the Gauls and the Spanish were pushed forward in the middle. Um, The Libyans were armored spearmen who had been, again, fighting for Hannibal and his dad for years. Real crack veterans and like the the hardcore of his army, the best guys. And loyal. And very loyal. And a lot of them were now equipped with Roman equipment because they had been arming themselves with the Roman dead uh, Mm -hmm. at all of the previous battles. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these guys basically look Roman at this point. They're throwing the pilum, that big heavy javelin. Uh, A lot of them might be stabbing with the gladius, um, but they probably still do have their big old spears as well. The Celtic infantry, though, must have cut a really intimidating figure, just that kind of biker gang aesthetic. Um. And they were really known for fighting fiercely, but they also had a bad reputation for not being super disciplined and for maybe maybe being the first ones on the battlefield to break when it started to look bad. I mean, they weren't wearing armor, so I don't know how much I can blame them. Yeah. So Hannibal not only put these guys in his center, but he pushed their part of the line forward. And that was on purpose to make sure that those guys, his, I'm not, to, I'm not putting any, I'm not uh, shading the Gauls, but Most skittish. His worst troops. Mm -hmm. Right there in the middle, and he made sure they were the ones the Romans would hit first. Um, Of course, he also had his many, many scary, scary horsemen. Big, armored Spanish and Celtic cavalry on his left side, and fast Numidian javelin throwers on horseback on his right side to do exactly what the Romans knew they would do and go try and get around their flanks. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, we talked about how these battles go last week. The first, all the javelin throwers and the slingers charge out. They run out from between their infantry lines and and meet kind of near the middle of the battlefield and just start trying to hit each other with javelins and sling stones, Mm -hmm. uh, which is weird. But again, they're trying to drive the other side off so they can maybe get close and uh, inflict some casualties on the other side. 
you're probably not going to kill an armored guy with a shield with your javelin, but maybe you'll hit him in the leg, and then he has to kind of be led to the back, and they have to fill him in with a with a reserve or something. Um, my point is, these things didn't have a, a huge amount of impact most of the time, and on this day, even though the Romans probably had a lot more skirmishers, they clashed for maybe an hour or so without really doing anything. A lot of these guys probably didn't want to be there very much. A lot of these guys probably weren't trying to hit each other with javelins very much. Um, but they did their little uh, run forward, run back, throw their javelins. Um, and eventually everyone, I don't know, got bored. And the Romans began their advance. Uh, we're going to return now to our main source for this episode, Adrian Goldsworthy, in his book, Can I? Uh, Hannibal's Greatest Victory. Win this battle? Oh, can I? <laughs> Goldsworthy says, By the time the Roman center began to lumber forward, the men were undoubtedly covered in a thin layer of the dust, clouds of which continued to be thrown up by their marching feet and whipped around in the gusting wind. So as the Romans advanced, they're in these tighter-than-usual formations I talked about, really long but really tight. Everything's dusty. I hate a dusty vibe. Oh, it's dusty, and the Romans are marching Ugh. into it. Um, yeah. Historians argue about whether this was just luck for Hannibal. He was very good at picking battlefields, but the direction of the wind was probably luck on the day because the Romans formed up first. Mm -hmm. But the Romans were marching into the wind. Mm. And as they advanced, uh, there were smaller gaps than usual between their lines um, because of the narrow plain. So this tightly kind of manicured regimented army pretty quickly just became something like a crowd of 80,000 men with no sort of distinguishable units just marching forward. And it must be equally difficult because they're all carrying these giant shields which are being blown by the wind. It's like an umbrella uh, yeah. <laughs> pushing them backwards. And the shield was already, we said last week, 22 pounds that you're carrying all on your left arm all day. Yeah. Um, That's carrying Poe on one arm all day. A hundred percent. Your formation would dissolve. You don't have this thing where you're standing next to the same guys all the time um, because really eager, kind of eager beavers ready for glory and stuff would run forward. They'd kind of push forward in the formation so they could get to the fighting faster. Um, and of course, there'd also be the opposite, right? There'd be some kind of, again, we're not casting aspersions, but there would be cowards who would edge further back in the fighting who, you know, because they knew that would be the line that got to run first. And that would be me, because I am not made for this. Um, this was the, again, least trained batch of Romans we have, we have had yet, and they let loose their kind of unorganized... In later parts of this Punic War, this second Punic War, the Romans will stop in unison, 15 meters exactly from the opponent, all let their javelins fly one after the other in this horrible cloud of death, you know, and then charge forward screaming all at the same time in, the, in this really, really scary... That's not these guys. Mm -hmm. uh, these guys are stop between 30 and 15 meters and kind of fumble out their javelins and throw them, and then uh, they charge forward some more, and then we talked about that awkward shuffle because mm -hmm. you don't want to slam into the other guy and risk getting knocked down. You're dead if you're knocked down. Yeah. So it would be this charge forward for the last couple of meters. And then uh, Adrian Goldsworthy has everything in meters because he's English. Uh, <laughs> and then they would do this kind of awkward shuffle into contact. Um, but before 
probably before the ca- the infantry actually made contact with their shields, the cavalry made contact on uh, the wings because horses move a lot faster than dudes. Yes, it's kind of the whole reason you have them on the battlefield. And uh, Hannibal almost definitely got his cavalry in there before the main infantry lines clashed together. And the cavalry fight um, on the Romans' right side went kind of exactly like you would expect it to go. Hannibal's, uh, one of his most trusted officers was Hasdrubal. These Carthaginian names are... uh, Hasdrubal? Hasdrubal. Okay. Uh, And Hasdrubal led the Carthaginian heavy cavalry in a charge. Hannibal wasn't on a horse in this fight. He was in the center, actually, with the Gauls and the Spaniards. He was on a mini elephant. <laughs> nope. No, those I were know, all dead. I know, they're all dead now. So Hasdrubal led Hannibal's heavy cavalry, all of them. He probably had two-thirds of his cavalry on one side. And he led them in a charge on the Romans' right, where the Roman cavalry was pretty quickly killed or sent running in uh, some brief, brutal hand-to-hand fighting. Mm-hmm. They probably had a two-to-one advantage, these Carthaginian cavalry. And uh, Polybius, we've been talking about Polybius and Livy, the Roman historians, a lot in this series. Mm-hmm. Polybius says mounted combat at this time was usually a lot of like, you would charge and one side would break and run away and they would have to reform kind of once they got far enough and, and then they would charge back at you uh, and so on back and forth. But not this time. Uh, he says, Polybius does, that there was none of the normal wheeling about and reforming facing the original direction. Um, instead, on ground that was too narrow for, you know, clever flanking maneuvers and stuff, the Carthaginians just charged straight into the uh, Romans, just a bunch of horses crashing into horses, and things bar- devolved into a, quote, barbaric melee, according to Polybius. And why did this happen? Um, because they didn't have room, usually there would be a lot of, like, wheeling around and mm-hmm. maneuvering, trying to get your opponents from behind or from the side. But there were just so many Romans. There just wasn't enough room on this narrow plane with the infantry battle happening so close. There wasn't room to skirt around and try to get at the enemy. So the Carthaginians... Oh, the other thing is Hasdrubal's trying to get this done really fast for reasons we'll discuss. And so he just wants to charge right into the Romans and kill as many of them as fast as he can. Okay. Because if they start running, then he can go do the rest of his job. Uh, Polybius says many of the horsemen dismounted and fought on foot. This is just like the first cavalry clash we talked about uh, all the way back at the Ticinus River in 218. Uh, Sometimes these dudes just get off their horses and start fighting like it's a normal battle. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why they did this. And even uh, uh, Livy and Polybius say that the consul who was fighting in this area, one of the consuls, Paulus, was down here. They say he dismounted first, either because his horse was hurt or he was hurt, and then his other guys followed suit. Oh, he's doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, this is the style. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, there's just a bunch of these loose horses milling around. Everybody my age pees their pants. It's the coolest. They're making me trying to make him feel better about his horse. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, but again, with, like we saw with the Tassinas, sometimes these guys would just get into... They didn't know how to fight with horses yet, really. 
Their horses didn't have stirrups yet, even stuff like that. So um, they might have just found it easier at a certain point to swing off their horses, a lot of them, and start stabbing people up. Um, Livy says guys were being dragged down out of their saddles and stabbed on the ground. And he says the fighting was, quote, more fierce than of long duration. And before long, the surviving Romans were uh, getting on their horses and getting their asses out of there. Goldsworthy says, Hasdrubal's men pursued them, cutting down many of the fugitives, their flight made difficult by the shape of the river. Hmm. So that's what's going on with the horses. Okay. Meanwhile, I promised an infantry clash, and in the center of the battlefield, the two armies' massive battle lines finally clashed together with that awkward little shuffle. And then we talked about how this devolves into kind of a bunch of little individual duels where you're trying to stay behind your shield while stabbing around the shield of the guy in front of you. Mm -hmm. Goldsworthy says, we should imagine the two front ranks separated by a meter or so, prodding and cutting at each other in a constant clatter of blade against shield, helmet, and sometimes flesh. Once again, individuals hope that their appearance, physical size, expression, plumes, shiny armor, impressive hair or beard, and the noise they made would intimidate their opponents and aid their victory. I don't know. His plumes are pretty big. Let me try the noise. (laughs) Now, Hannibal himself, like I said, he's right there in the middle of the line fighting with his worst troops. Mm-hmm. He and his brother Mago, apparently, were both with the Gauls uh, to make sure they would hold the line as long as humanly possible. Love isn't always on time. It's not. And, whoa, whoa, whoa. And um, the question is whether Hasdrubal would be on time because the infantry in the middle here were dealing with a vastly superior Roman force. And it was only going to be a matter of time before the Gauls and Spanish started to break and run. Mm-hmm. So hand-to-hand combat with edged weapons, with swords and spears, is exhausting. It's exhausting physically and it's exhausting emotionally because you're terrified and because most people don't actually want to shove spears into people. Mm -hmm. And Adrian Goldsworthy says the fighting could only have been continuous for a couple minutes at a time. And then they would kind of draw back and take a breather for a minute and just kind of shout at each other. (laughs) <laughs> and then they would, and then they, eventually their officers would make them come forward again. And and as the battle went on, these periods of violence would get shorter, and the breaks in between them would get longer. Okay. He says, if one side did not quickly collapse, then the actual combat could not continue more than a few minutes. Instead, the two sides t- seemed to have drawn apart, perhaps little more than a few meters. Then they drew breath, shouted at the enemy, and perhaps threw any remaining missiles at them. If no outside force intervened. Victory would eventually go to the side that endured the stress of staying so close to the enemy for the longest and was still able to urge enough of its men forward to continue fighting. It's really a different picture than you see in the movies. You know what I mean? And even just modern warfare. I mean, it's, you know, saving Private Ryan, things like that. It's right in your face. But even so, you still have a gun. You still can make some distance. I mean, the idea of taking little breaks and just staring each other down and it being more of a waiting game than anything else is um, something I hadn't really considered before. And if you're the Celts and the Spanish, you don't have anyone behind you. The Romans have, again, 20 guys behind them in the front line. Mm -hmm. 
and then they have two more lines behind that one, each with 20 more lines of guys. Mm -hmm. The Roman supply is like inexhaustible, and when one of their guys dies or gets injured or gets tired out, they just pull him out and plug the next guy in. And that's what the officers are there for, is to just direct that constant flow of troops. That constant flow of troops was going all into the center of the battlefield where uh, Hannibal's line had been set forward, because that's where the lines made contact, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you had was the Romans doing exactly what Hannibal, as it turned out, wanted and funneling more and more of their army. Um, picture a funnel shape, truly. Funneling more of their army into the center point there. And eventually, the Spanish and, and Celts held out longer than anyone could have expected them to and longer than anyone did. Maybe because Hannibal himself was still there. He had, like, supposedly a musculata um, plate, which is like... Like you see in 300, like the ab sculpted sculpted armor. Oh, yeah, and, and Cleopatra as well. Yeah, it's crazy. And he had this sweet, like, curved Falcon sword. I mean, he was, he was a badass out there. <laughs> I think he had, like, a V-cut at the bottom of his armor. I think he had a V under the armor. <laughs> well, he's a hard fighter. But inevitably, bit by bit, the Gauls were pushed back, still holding the line facing the Romans for the most part. Um... And the outward bulge that had Hannibal had started with at the beginning of the battle mm-hmm. became an inward bulge as the Romans pushed his guys forward. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. He started with a, sort of a, a convex line, and he has a concave line now as the mm-hmm. Romans push it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, on the Roman left, we talked about the cavalry on the, on the right. On the Roman left... Hannibal's light cavalry had been harassing the other consul who was commanding the allied Italian and uh, Gallic cavalry that was with the Romans. So this was Hannibal's Numidians. They were light cavalry. They had very light armor, very fast horses, and they didn't want to close with you and stab you up with spears. They just wanted to throw javelins at you and then run away. Mm -hmm. And the consul, Vero, thought it was going pretty well so far. His job was just to keep the cavalry from overwhelming him and from getting at his army. And all the cavalry had managed to do was kind of bother his guys with javelins, keep them at bay, um, maneuver them around a little bit, but they hadn't gotten past them. And so he he thought it was going pretty well. Little did he know, the Numidians were only trying to keep the Italian cavalry busy until Hasdrubal could finish up on the Roman right and swoop his guys in behind them to chase off the last of the Roman horses, which is what happened with basically no effort. As soon as uh, Vero and his guys saw that the heavy cavalry was charging across the field toward them, you're outnumbered. There was, there was no point in them staying around, but as they fled, there was nothing left to protect the infantry. Yeah. And we will go back to the center of this battlefield uh, and... The Roman infantry still charging forward, still with victory between its teeth as Hannibal's army appears ready to split in two. We are at the tension point at the center of this battle. And spoiler alert, when we come back, it's going to go really, really badly for the Romans. I had a feeling. Coming up on 5-Minute News... I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome back. We are um, in a, a pretty bad place, Carrie, and it's going to get <laughs> a lot worse in just a second. We're on a battlefield in... You sound like me during lockdown. <laughs> a battlefield in 216 BC near the Roman town of Cannae. I think I've heard you call this the place in history you would least like to be. The place in time, the, the moment in history that you would never want to go to yeah there's um there's a lot of things that compete for that uh sure no i yeah obviously uss indianapolis yep um comes to mind but yeah this is this is a really this is going to become one of the worst places on earth to be all time Uh, top five probably for me and we will um maybe you know i mean there's certainly places prisons and concentration camps, things like that, that obviously had much more sustained horror for a long period of time. But yeah, things like this, the USS Indianapolis, it's like this just, just this moment of horror in the span of, of eons, but it's still, it's still really bad. The, um, the, the story with the rugby team in the mountains. Yeah. Like, that didn't last forever. That didn't last for years, but it lasted long enough. Pretty pretty rough. Yeah. Pretty bad place to be. Um, this is a shorter story than either of those, but I pound for pound, there's a lot of suffering on this battlefield. Yeah. So, as I said, the Roman cavalry had just been chased off from both wings leaving them pretty undefended in the back. But meanwhile, the Gauls and Spanish had finally broken in the middle of Hannibal's line, right on schedule for the Romans, and as it turns out, for Hannibal. And that Roman army that was already a crowd now started to turn into a mob Hmm. as the men got their bloodlust up. We talked last week about how most people die in an ancient battle when a rout starts to happen. When the line panics, breaks, loses formation, and turns their backs, and now without shields and stuff to protect them, they just get ridden down and stabbed to death by an army that was scared a second ago and is now channeling that into bloodlust. Right. And that's what was happening here. The Gauls and Spanish started to panic, started to turn and run, and the Romans at the front of this pack, this mob, could not do anything except chase them as fast as they could. There was no order anymore uh, in the Roman, and that causes confusion behind them. The Romans surged forward and became kind of a confused mass. Mm -hmm. Goldsworthy does say, as usual, the Carthaginian foot seems to have suffered very heavy casualties as they fled from a vengeful enemy. The Romans couldn't have known until moments later that they were walking charging really into a trap into hannibal's trap that he'd been basically bait (laughs) laying the whole time yes yeah it might be i mentioned that the libyan infantry were wearing roman armor a lot of them and some historians speculate that 
the legions might not even have known they were the enemy. Sure. Until they were too close and it was too late. Because as I said, Hannibal's line had kind of um, been turned from a concave with the... Basically pointing toward, like if it was like a triangle, it would be pointing towards the Romans. Yes. And, that and now it inverts and it's the, the point of the triangle is back towards themselves. Yes. And that means, meanwhile, he had marched up the Libyans on both sides, these mm-hmm. expert spearmen in Roman armor. So now it's becoming kind of a diamond, almost able to close uh, the point around the other side. Yes, the Romans have marched themselves into a position where now on the left and the right, there are these columns Mm -hmm. of African infantry. And in front of them and kind of surging around the back. Well, the line in front of them is broken and is panicked fleeing at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see how long that lasts. The main problem is that as they, as this army marches forward to the sides slash back of them now are these two totally fresh, haven't done any fighting yet, columns of uh, Libyan infantry. And these are Hannibal's expert veteran spearmen. Mm-hmm. Goldsworthy says, we do not know who gave the orders, but the column on the left turned to form a line facing to the right. And those on the right turned to face left. Then the two phalanxes marched forward and attacked into the flanks of the crowded mass of pursuing Roman soldiers. So meanwhile, with Hannibal's help, probably, there were Gauls on the, on the sides, right, who hadn't mm-hmm. broken yet. They managed to form a line up, probably with some of the guys who had been running, now returning. I don't think it was a feigned flight, which is a thing people would do sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think this is a real flight, but I think Hannibal managed to rally some of the guys back. And now all of a sudden, the Romans were surrounded on three sides. Yeah. Libyans on one side, Libyans on the other side, and now... And they're just moving further into this three-sided monstrosity. (laughs) Yes. He has... Hannibal has basically let them almost encircle themselves Mm -hmm. by marching forward into his army. Now, the infantry at the back of the pack would have been the last, as you pointed out, Carrie, to figure out what was going on all the time. Yeah. And it's way too late to turn them around and form any kind of an organized fighting line facing backwards by the time Hasdrubal's heavy cavalry come back in behind them. Goldsworthy says, it was difficult for most soldiers to know how well even their own unit's fight was going unless they were in the front rank, and only if they could make sense of the overwhelming noise could they possibly gauge the progress of the fight elsewhere in the line. This created a permanent sense of nervousness, since men knew that if a serious breakthrough occurred in their line and it collapsed into flight, the men most likely to be killed by the pursuing enemy were the ones who hesitated before they ran. Mm. So especially since the guys at the back were probably those light skirmishers who had run out with their javelins and then retreated behind the infantry before the battle started, They'd probably used up all their javelins. Um, They probably maybe had a gladius, that that kind of pointy point short sword we talked about. Mm -hmm. And that's going to do exactly shit against a charging horse with a spearman on its back. Yeah. And so Hannibal's greatest tactical victory was complete. That is, there's nothing better you could accomplish with an army than the encirclement of a much larger army by your much smaller army. And that's what Hannibal had now done as the Carthaginians closed in on all sides. And what happened after that? 
Uh, Goldsworthy says that uh, there's basically no more battle to be had here, but that the fighting would continue for uh, most of the rest of the afternoon. There was to be little tactical sophistication in the final phase of the battle, but fighting would continue for much of the rest of the day as Carthaginians attacked from all sides and systematically slaughtered the greater part of the Roman infantry mass. Mm. And about 50,000 Romans and their allies were systematically slaughtered throughout the afternoon. My God. Um, this is, if you watched Game of Thrones, the uh, the famous Battle of the Bastards episode, a, a, a bright point in a pretty dog shit season of television. <laughs> wow. At the end, when Jon Snow and his guys get surrounded and they're getting crushed in, that was based, I mean, they obviously Horrifying. Took, but they took the inspiration from this. And so would this be a strategy to like basically suffocate and crush people to death? Well, you don't have to, what you're, well, the, the strategy at this point is, if you can call it that, is just to stab the guys on the outside and right. then stab the guys behind them and then stab the guys behind them. But, but at a certain point, how do you even get past all of the bodies you've created on the outside ring? Well, it was exhausting. Um <laughs> Let's, well, let's, let's, and I was tired. I, we, I, we'll talk about it in some detail, Carrie. For, <laughs> for the men on the outside of this mob of trapped Romans, this wasn't that much different than the horror the rest of the day had been. Mm-hmm. Except that now there was nowhere to run. But you still have formed some kind of a fighting line with your comrades. You've got your shields. You're, try, you're hiding behind your shield trying to stab at the Gaul or Spaniard or Libyan who's trying to stab at you. Mm-hmm. But now your comrades are pressed closely behind you. And even when the man next to you is killed and order breaks down, there might not be anywhere to run. Goldsworthy again. Sometimes the press in the Roman ranks was so great they could not retreat even when things went badly for them in the combat. Unable to escape because of the mass of men behind them, legionaries were cut down, offering little resistance. Some, inside the formation, and unable to see what was going on, may have had little opportunity to realize their peril, until the men in front were cut down, and enemies suddenly appeared to strike at them. Mm. For the men at the very center of the army, it must have been even worse. They were pressed together. Um, Most of the guys past the front ranks were pressed so closely together they couldn't raise their arms to use their swords or shields. Mm -hmm. And they were standing like this for hours. Some men um, died of exhaustion or uh, just more pressure or uh, suffocation just in the press at the middle of this mob. <sighs> Trampled to death, uh, you know, by their, by their panicked comrades. Mm-hmm. The Carthaginians were still using sling stones and javelins too. So those are just pelting into the, uh, the sardine pack of you. I mean, a guy next to you might die and he still might be standing up next to you for a while because his body is like held there by the crush of people all around you. Carrie, he will be standing there for a while. so, so terrible. Early in the afternoon, individuals and groups would occasionally break through and try to run away uh, through the Carthaginian line, especially on the side where the cavalry were. Mm-hmm. Cavalry can't, I mean, obviously, right? They can't fight so closely together and they can't form a line the same way. So Try to run under the horse and see if it'll help. Run between the horses, yeah. hope they don't cut you down on your way. Yeah, Those were the only guys who would escape that day. 
It got harder as the perimeter got tighter, but you know, little little groups would escape. Goldsworthy says this was exhausting work, not just for the defenders, but for the men just killing dozens and dozens of men. Uh, and this was still stop-and-go fighting. As the day drew on, the hot wind blowing clouds of dust across the dry plain, Hannibal's infantry closed again and again to fight hand-to-hand -hand with the Romans. Wearily, they cut and jabbed at the legionaries shel sheltering behind their shields, trying to break into their ranks. And he says, occasionally the Romans would push them back, but, quote, most often it was the Roman line which went back slowly, facing the enemy, or dissolved into rout. Then the Carthaginians pursued them, striking at unprotected backs, killing especially the men wounded in the earlier fighting, who were now too weak or slow to escape. Knocked to the ground, they were dispatched with frenzied blows, usually to the head. He says, they fought until they were weary and, and the edges of their swords and spear points were blunted through killing, and until their shields and the breasts of their horses were stained with blood. And that is a pretty, he's a pretty clinical historian. He's not like, he doesn't go in for, for really lurid descriptions. Yeah, but like, this is how it is. The breasts of their horses stained with blood. Oof. So this continued for hours through the whole afternoon until every Roman that was left on the field was dead. 50,000 men, God. including 80 senators and one of the year's consuls. The field had been splashed with an estimated 30,000 gallons of blood. That's as least, that's at least as much as uh, Peter Jackson used in Dead Alive. <laughs> Oh my God! And that was and that was just corn syrup. So eighty thousand Romans showed up for that battle. Fifty thousand were killed. It's estimated that uh, a sixth to a fifth of fighting age Roman men died here at on this day. Didn't like wasn't the death toll of the civil the whole civil war like one hundred fifty thousand or something like that? Mm -hmm. So basically, this is like if. A third of the men died at Gettysburg. Well, we've been watching. Not even Gettysburg. That was multiple days. Like one day. We've been Civil War crazy in this house. Um, and it is. <laughs> well, that sounds weird. Well, we have. I've been reading a Team of Rivals and we've been watching Ken Burns. Yeah, we're in our grandpa era. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a lot of Civil War. And uh, those those totals are like 7,000 dead on both sides, you know. For, and they'll be like, oh, the bloodiest day in American history. Yeah. Um, it's, it's ancient battles are just such a different animal. And I should always stress, I don't know if I should stress, but I should mention people disagree about how inflated these numbers are. Ancient numbers are often inflated, but I don't know that these ancient numbers are mm -hmm. inflated because this looks really bad for the Romans and we're going from Roman sources. Well, it's also like nowadays in a war unfortunately you'd have more major battles just because of weaponry and and troops and the ability to transport people places and the ability to predict certain things so back in the day when they had a big battle they had a big battle because you're only going to have a couple of those a year sometimes and because of the way because of those super lopsided uh, death tolls. We talked about how the winner would almost never lose more than like 5% of their guys. Right. And the loser would, you know, I mean, look, this be decimated. Is, they lost but like two thirds of their army here in, in dead men. Everybody else is captured, by the way. What happened to everyone? Like the 
bodies left on the field? I mean, were they just left there? Because did they come retrieve them for burial? Like, what was the, the custom at the time? They were... Because, I, again, I'm just thinking in terms of Gettysburg, and that was a horrific scene, bodies everywhere, and those were much smaller numbers. Uh, they would have been removed, I think, only because there's a town so nearby and, and maybe put into mass graves or something. But if you were a poor Roman, you were probably just getting thrown into a lime oh, sure. pit outside I'm the just, city. Anyway. You know, what do you do with, with all of that? Yeah, uh, sometimes ancient battlefields would just... And deposit it all at once. It's not like it's over time. Yeah, no, it's a lot of piling. Oof, God. Uh, then the Carthaginians rode over to the Roman camp to kill and capture all the soldiers remaining there. Uh, Hannibal had lost, on the day, six to 8,000 men, which Goldsworthy actually calls an appallingly high, that's his word, appallingly high figure for a victorious army at the time. It's like 12 to 16% of his uh, guys, depending on, on how many, how mm -hmm. many he lost. Um, so the Romans fought hard, and it was a risky strategy that, that Hannibal knew involved having his, his line collapse in the middle and, and all, all this. But you can't argue with 50,000 dead Romans, I guess. No, I won't even try. Uh, Livy says, The next day, when morning broke, the Carthaginians turned to gathering spoils and inspecting the carnage, which even they found horrifying. Thousands of Roman soldiers lay there, infantry and cavalry scattered everywhere, united in a death which the blind chances of battle or flight had brought upon them. A few, whose wounds had been staunched by the morning frosts, even rose from among the heaps of dead all covered in blood, only to be slaughtered there and then by their enemies. So you've got like zombie-like, some guys sort of I'm not dead yet, rising mm -hmm. in horror, to looking around them, I assume, and then God. just being cut down. Others were discovered, still alive, but lying there with their knees or hamstrings sliced apart, mm. bearing their necks or throats and begging their enemies to drain the rest of their blood. Some were even found with their heads buried in the ground, having dug small pits for themselves and buried their faces in the earth, and then simply smothered themselves to death. That's crazy. That's like when you hear about people swallowing their own tongues in prison, and you're like, how could you even possibly... You're talking about Mad-Eye Migs again? No. <laughs> no, multiple Migs, not Mad-Eye. I'm not talking about him, but I'm saying like you hear... But you do hear about that. It's like a stereotypical thing. Didn't he swallow his own tongue? Yes, because Hannibal convinced him to. Um, and it's like, how... How could you overpower your body like that your instinct like that i mean obviously there are ways to as tiktok would say unalive yourself but and and that does take a, a certain amount of you know decision making it's like, like biting off your little finger speaking of things you've yes. heard on tiktok yeah well yeah so he's referring to the thing to the the sort of adage where it's like you could, you, you have the, the jaw strength to bite off your own pinky. Um, it's basically like biting into a carrot and, and, you know, difficulty. But your body stops you from, and from doing it, from, from going through with it, usually, unless there's some sort of, you know, thing going on with you mentally. Um, but like just the, just the idea of being able to... Ostrich yourself? 
to do to like the to to wait that out, you know. I mean, uh, of people drown themselves, people do different things, but like while all of that is going on around you, like in the middle of the chaos, to just be like, I need to take any way out I could possibly figure out. I mean, you're holding a sword, right? Unless it got knocked away or your hands are all messed up. I don't know. But seems- just just the idea that, that what's around you is so horrible that that's a better option is horrifying. I I just wonder if that like if that was found, but those men were actually sort of cowering and then getting their heads trampled into the ground or you know Maybe. whatever. But I mean, but I could you know I could see it if if that's your only option. Oh, I love and I'm definitely titling this episode with their heads buried in the ground. But <laughs> oh, your your third uh, emo album. Yes, these are all e- great. And you will emo know things. us by our heads buried in the ground. <laughs> I'm definitely using that as the name of the episode. I love the I love how dramatic and poetic it is. I just don't know if everything Livy says is definitely true. But he's got style. Oh, he's got style. <laughs> That's by the way not the most spectacular sight he says the Carthaginians found there on the battlefield. Would you like to hear the most spectacular sight? Does it have to do with an elephant? The most spectacular sight of all was a Numidian soldier, still alive, but lying beneath a dead Roman with his nose and ears torn to shreds. The Roman had fought to his final breath, and when his hands could no longer hold his weapon, his anger turned to madness, and he died tearing his enemy to pieces with his teeth. Now, Livy definitely uses is, is telling us that because it's like an example of great Roman values or whatever. Uh-huh. So he's, he's like, look how great our boys are. Yes, great. It's, it's great and good. I probably believe it less than the guys burying their heads in the in the sand, but I I, I like what it tells us about the Roman character. Well, like maybe one in a hundred thousand guys might try to chew someone apart. Look at Mike Tyson. I bet somebody got their nose bit on this battlefield. There's no question. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about the aftermath. What do you do after this happens? The Romans were already, um. Remember, they had declared a dictator the year before because they were already in a state of emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea what you do at this point, unless there's another dictator that comes in and actually has a better strategy. They had raised, I think, the biggest army Rome had ever had in the field at one time. Exactly. I don't know what else you do. There, there probably will never be this big an army together again in the Republican era. Mm-hmm thousand Roman soldiers killed by Hannibal and his dudes at this point. And now, after winning at Cannae, Hannibal was just a few miles away from Rome. With smooth sailing all the way, no Roman army left to oppose him if he wanted to just come over and conquer the city. So how did he lose? Well, the city was in a full-blown panic. Yeah. They were completely sure Hannibal would be rolling up on their gates any day. And the Romans, um, being a deeply religious people, but the Romans were, really, <laughs> I like them because they're religious in a really practical way. Mm-hmm. So when they get kicked, their asses kicked four or five times in a row by Hannibal, they lose 100,000 soldiers. Obviously, it meant they had fallen behind on the religious checks and balances sheet. Mm-hmm. Some god or another, would, they were in arrears and they had to pay up. 
So the most important thing is figuring out which God you've offended and how you're supposed to propitiate them. And this is all very serious state business. Two Vestal virgins were accused of being unchaste, of having had sex. You're going to blame all this on the two virgins? It was the one thing they were definitely not supposed to do. Okay, but I mean, it seems a little unbalanced. Well, the the men who they were, you know, supposedly caught with were in, punished as well. Mm-hmm. The men were whipped brutally. One of them was actually whipped so brutally that he died from his injuries. Um, and one of the Vestals suffered the traditional punishment on her side for having sex, which was to be buried alive near the city's Coline Gate. She probably didn't even do it. And even if she did, who cares? But the other Vestal Virgin was not buried alive because she killed herself before the city guard could get to her. Yeah. But the city magistrates weren't sure, A, if that if the Vestals had even slept around or not. And B, they weren't sure if that was, you know, what was going to get this thing done, if that was what had made the gods angry, if that was the target here. It does. It seems a little, uh, you know... I don't know. Even as a god, I'd feel like this seems like a little much in response to two virgins having sex. But the punishment for the virgins, for the Vestal virgins having sex, may very well have originally been set down by the Sibylline books, which, of course, the city magistrates also consulted. Do you know about the Sibylline books? (laughs) The way your eyes are looking at me, I don't know. I feel like I'm outside of a Scientology headquarters. Do you know about Dianetics? <laughs> um, let me let me take you on your first step towards your personal relationship with the Sibylline books, Carrie. Um, they are both very spooky and very Roman. Two things that I am and might be. The Sibylline books were three books that were kept under lock and key in a vault under Rome. Do we have these books? I'm n- not the originals, but like, do we know what were what was in them? There are some possibly apocryphal snatches of verse that are supposedly from the Sibylline books. They're probably fake. Okay. Legend has it. <laughs> this is what the story the Romans told about the Sibylline books was that Tarquinius, the seventh and final king of Rome, had acquired the books from a mysterious old priestess. She had come, it's almost like a Beauty and the Beast story, like she was a, a, a poor old hag who had come to his house one day with nine books of prophecy. And then, oh no, she's hot. No, well, she offered to sell the books for an exorbitant price. Mm-hmm. And Tarquinius said, I don't know you. Uh, I don't, you know, I've got the money, but I don't need your books. Fuck out of here. And the priestess went home and burned three of the books and then came back the following day with the other six and offered them again to Tarquinius for the same price. You run a hard bargain. Well, Tarquinius says, I'm not falling for this. You're giving me less book now, same price. I say, no, no. He sent her, he sent her packing. And in fact, he said he didn't want to see her again. Tarquinius's advisors were uh, pretty upset with him for letting this chance walk away twice. Book of Prophecy mysterious old woman we know that's where prophecies come from it's always a mysterious old woman what are you talking what are you doing tarquinius mm. now if i was back then i would live the best life as a mysterious old woman just make up a bunch of prophecies uh get a bunch of doubloons out of it they haven't even seen what's in the books yet 
Oh, yeah. I would just write a bunch of bullshit. So the lady burned three more of the books and came back with just the, the remaining three and offered them again at the original asking price. And Tarquinius, uh, urged by his uh, advisors and wise men, bought the books. Mm-hmm. They were stored, as I said, in a sacred vault under the Temple of Jupiter. And there was a, an elected council, elected by themselves, uh, of ten dudes. Yep, sounds right. Who were the only ones who were allowed to touch or look at these books. And so whenever the city faced hard times, or when there were obviously negative omens, like a, dirt, a bird dying in the forum, or lightning striking the temple, or any of this stuff... This council of 10 guys would be sent to, to consult the books, which were written in Greek uh, poetry. Mm-hmm. And they would find a passage that applied to what was going on. Nostradamus-esque. They would interpret the passage, and then they would come back and tell the people what rights or sacrifices or policy changes would need would be needed to uh, sate the gods. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the books had a pretty severe prescription. As in the dead of night, a group of priests and soldiers went to the cattle market, one of the oldest squares in the city, and opened up a tomb that had stayed closed since the city's dark, old days. Four people, a Gaul man and woman and a Greek man and woman, were thrown into the tomb and buried alive. Oh my god. From Livy here, a a proud Roman, by the way. In the meantime, by the direction of the Books of Fate, some unusual sacrifices were offered. Amongst others, a Gaulish man and woman and a Greek man and woman were buried alive in the cattle market in a place walled in with stone, which, even before this time, had been defiled with human victims, a sacrifice wholly alien to the Roman spirit. I mean, they weren't big on human sacrifice. No, it was one of the things they thought was weird about the Carthaginians, was that they sacrificed their children. Well, to be fair, the Romans were like, we're not going to do us. We're going to do a couple of Gauls and a couple of Greeks. Exactly. But, you know, who a they, person's a person. Who they considered slavish people. Right. Um, but that was, that was kind of the public response to this, to this tragedy and disaster out in the field. People are panicking. It's uh, buying up the toilet paper all over again. So dark storm clouds continued to gather. Most of Rome's allies across southern Italy now did defect to Hannibal. And even with the sacrifices made, a Carthaginian march on Rome seemed inevitable, but it never came. Why not? Well, Hannibal's strat... People disagree about this, by the way. Uh, A lot of people... There are stories from Roman historians, so probably (laughs) apocryphal because they weren't there, but about, like... Hasdrubal, actually, we talked about him before, going, Hannibal, we gotta we gotta march on Rome, baby. And Hannibal being like, no, let's consolidate our strength. Let's flip some Italian allies first. I'm not worried about Rome. And Hasdrubal said something to the effect of, Hannibal, no one can win a victory like you, but you don't know how to use one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the story. But Adrian Goldsworthy points out, Hannibal's goals probably just had nothing to do with taking Rome. Even with just whatever city guard was around, it would take months to break the city in a siege. So what was he trying to do? He was trying to get the Romans to negotiate peace and give them Sicily back. And did they? No! So... The Romans... Here's what you need to know about the Romans. They don't lose wars. 
And so if you've decided that you're just going to keep the war going till the Romans say they lose, guess what? Okay, so he's not going to conquer and he's not going to let them come to him. So what is he going to do? He offered the Romans peace terms after all of their allies in Italy basically had flipped and it was just Rome with a bunch of guns pointed at it. And they said no. They said no. And then... Well, the months after Cannae were the worst part of this war. It would continue for another 15 years. Jesus Christ. And by the time it was over, the Romans would lose 300,000 men. By the end, you don't even know what you're fighting about anymore. And finally, a guy named Publius Scipio the Younger. We talked about him actually in Hannibal Part 1. He's the guy who saved his father. Now, Pooby Skips. Yep, Pooby Skips. He saved his father 17 years before at the very first cavalry clash in Italy of this war. Scipio the Younger whooped Hannibal's ass at the Battle of Zama. They actually had uh, developed anti-elephant tactics by this time. <laughs> so the... Le- the uh, I know your tricks, old man. Yeah, the soldiers would like just move apart and let the elephant go through, and they would all hit it with javelins in its soft belly and, and legs as it tried to get turned around. It's hard for elephants to turn around. Poor things. Um, so he, they whooped Hannibal's ass so badly, actually, that Scipio got to start calling himself Scipio Africanus, Scipio mm. the African. He wasn't. and uh, I can assume that, yeah. And the Carthaginians had to sue for peace. We talked about a bad treaty that ended the first war, which led to the second war. This treaty was worse. Carthage lost all of its overseas territory, everything in Spain, a lot of its African territory. It had to pay a bigger war debt than it did the last time, and it wasn't allowed to wage war outside Africa at all anymore, and it couldn't wage war inside Africa unless Rome specifically gave it permission. (laughs) And this wasn't enough still for a lot of Romans. There was a senator at the time named Cato who had fought in this war, and he... From the time the peace was concluded, started ending every speech he made for the rest of his life in the Senate, regardless of whatever the speech was about, he would finish with, moreover, I advise that Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> I love him. And, well, he's definitely, he's, he, you know, he, he, he's, he's set in his ways. Mm-hmm. And he probably didn't fight at Cannae, but he did fight in the Second Punic War, so he had, uh, he had reason to hate the Carthaginians. And three years after Cato's death in 146 BC, the Romans did as he asked. They grabbed a Carthaginian campaign against the Numidians as an excuse, and yet another guy named Scipio led an army to besiege and then... Scipi Dos. Scipi Dos. Well, he would be Trace, I guess. I said what I said. (laughs) To besiege and then systematically destroy and murder the population of Carthage over seven days. Mm. They didn't take any prisoners until the last, until day seven. They, like, for the first six days, everyone they encountered was just murdered. Mm -hmm. On the seventh day, they took prisoners. They rested. And they took 50,000 prisoners that day. Where was Hannibal at this point? Was he still alive? That could be an exaggeration, by the way, because this is the Romans bragging about their own accomplishments. But sure. uh, anyway, they killed a lot of Carthaginians. Where was Hannibal at this point? Yeah, was he still alive? Well, Hannibal had been exiled sometime after the Second Punic War, sometime before that third very short Punic War. Why was that? He, 
he was never super popular with a lot of the politicians back in Carthage. Mm-hmm. And after they were under the boot of this really brutal Roman treaty, um, listen, Rome, Romans were no fan of he Hannibal. He the fall. Well, the Romans sent messages to Carthage basically being like, Hannibal's doing war stuff. You got to kick him out. Mm-hmm. And he may have been, he may not have been, but they kicked him out. He would uh, later be poisoned by another political rival, possibly on behalf of the Romans. But uh, that's all very uh, sticky and <laughs> and misty and murky, and not as um, well, not as fun as him killing fifty thousand Romans. Your definition of fun has always interested me, Sean. Um, that is the second Punic War carrier, at least the part concerning Hannibal, which is uh, the story I wanted to tell you. What do you think? What are your thoughts? You know, I think the longer you do anything, you either get better at it or you get worse at it. The Romans always got better at wars as they went. And um, I think Hannibal reached a plateau and he either got too cocky or maybe he got nervous that he wouldn't be able to live up to his accomplishments if he tried to, to go for the brass ring of conquering Rome. Because someone as politically brilliant, maybe not uh, strategically brilliant as him, would have known that Rome was never going to surrender or be like, you know what, you're right. Like, you know that. You, that's what you know about Rome. I, it seems so. I think he really thought once all of their allies had flipped, they would just go. If if that if, just if, seems out of character, though, with all of his strategic thinking, like maybe you guys just take Sicily back and we call it a draw. Yeah, I don't know. But, um, I mean, he was the fall guy at the end of the day. And it just went on too long. And after they hit that plateau, there was no way for them to win unless they they kept right on going to the end. And they didn't. Yeah, but then, I mean, what do you get from conquering? What do you get from besieging the city? I couldn't tell you. Um, If I could tell you, the world would be a very different place. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Uh, and I do, listen, the Romans, I wouldn't know, I, you don't want to live in ancient Rome. There's a lot, there's, I'm sure we'll return to them on this podcast again. There's a lot Yeah, scary. your ancient Rome, Roman Empire is the ancient Roman Empire. There's a lot that's, yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. But there's a lot that's scary about ancient Rome. There's a lot that I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be a Roman, you know what I mean? But I think we can take a lesson from them in the second Punic War and the first Punic War, and that is when you lose, just don't lose. Just choose not to lose. If you ain't first, you're last. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.
No news today, friends. We're just sharing the fact that next week we will be uh, not coming out with a new episode because we will be overseas once more in beautiful Norway. Yeah, oh, maybe we'll uh, prepare something thematic for when we come back. That would be nice. Well, you, you do something on trolls, Carrie? Is that a... Oh, yeah. Is that a reference? No. They just love... Tr- oh, you, you'd like the trolls, you troll. No, what? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you do have that, uh, you, you have that large gemstone in your belly button, so I've always don't thought that... Don't tell everyone about that. I was born that way. <laughs> I was a troll this way. I was a troll this way. <laughs> so we're not going to be here next week, but we will be back the week after. So that is the 7th. Um, so yeah, we'll see you guys then with a new episode, a new topic. And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this little series and see you on the flippity flip. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Did you say see you on the flippity flip? I said what I said. Yeah, and special thanks to our beloved <laughs> top-tier patrons, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, Anna, Delaney, and Sue. Thank you, guys. We love you very much. And we'll see you in two weeks. Um, don't get lonely without us. Come on. You, you, you're going to do great out there. See you next Thursday after... See you Thursday after next. Wow. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. (laughs) Flippity flop. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.